I want you to turn your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 27. We're teaching a series that we've entitled The Life of David. We're looking at some of the key moments in David's life and the characteristics of his life. He's the one that uh, the scripture, uh, the Old Testament scripture says that he was a man after God's own heart. So obviously there'd be a lot of things about him and about his character that would be good for us to know and to, uh, to emulate. Now when we first see David, uh, we find him as a young shepherd boy and the only two things that he's interested in or concerned about in his life is number one worshiping God singing praises to God out in the fields and secondly uh, tending the sheep that belonged to his father Um, through a series of circumstances the the prophet Samuel comes down to his house and anoints him to be the next king in place of Saul Um, he winds up being acquainted with and part of um, King Saul's palace personnel then he has the the uh, great victory with uh, goliath where he's not afraid of anybody or anything he's willing to take on uh, an enemy a giant that's uh, that seems to be insurmountable odds for him and uh, and wins the great victory and as a result he's brought into saul's inner circle he becomes uh, probably the captain of his of his personal guard and um, uh, and has great exploits. They start singing songs about him. Saul has slain his thousands, but David has slain his ten thousands, and Saul gets jealous of him. And for the next seven years, Saul tries to kill David and chases after him and pursues him and so forth. Now, during that time, David kind of has his ups and downs because he starts off as a man that's fearless, or young, really young boy, probably 17 or so years of age. He starts off fearless. He's not afraid of the lion or bear. He's not afraid of... Goliath, he's not afraid of anybody, but then he gets afraid of Saul. And so he starts running, starts making his own plans. And, and like I said, he's, he kind of has his ups and downs. He starts off afraid of Saul and then finds out that God's protection is enough for him. And so he's living in the wilderness. And, and he has two different occasions where he has an opportunity to kill Saul. Saul is delivered into his hand. And the Bible says in both places, the Lord did it. The Lord delivered Saul into David's hand. But David, one of the guiding principles, core principles of David's life was that he would not touch anybody that God put in position as king. And so he spares Saul's life in both cases. And at the end of chapter 26, where we ended last week, uh, he is the, the second of those two events where he goes into the camp at night and he gets Saul's spear in his uh, canteen. And uh, comes back and says across the valley, he, he shouts out, I could have killed you. How come the people that are supposed to be guarding you aren't doing a good job? And so Saul finally says to him that, uh, that I will no more seek your life. Let's see if I can get this. In verse 21 of Saul, 1 Samuel 26, Saul said, I have sinned. Return my son, David, for I will no more do thee harm. And so as a result, uh, David, uh, I'm sorry, Saul goes his way. He returns back to the, the business of being king and quits chasing after, after David. But let's pick up in chapter 27 and verse 1. And David said in his heart, I shall now perish one day by the hand of Saul. Now, the title of tonight's message is David Becomes King. And we're going to try to cover a lot of ground uh, as far as the, the, um, uh, the chapters are concerned. We'll try to cover about eight and a half chapters. But I'll just hit the high spots. I'll, I won't be going through verse by verse or anything. But, um, but notice that right after... God delivers David in a supernatural way. He caused a deep sleep to fall upon the army of Saul so that David and and, uh, uh, his companions snuck in and out without uh, hindrance. And uh, that's when he got the spear in the canteen from Saul so that he could prove that he had a chance to kill Saul. And and here David seems to be doing the same thing that, um, um, well, many others in in the Bible do. 
And that is after they win a victory and after God shows his deliverance, then they turn around and they make their mistake. And I think there's a real danger and, and a lesson for us to learn in that. On the heels of every victory, the devil's there to try to discourage you and get you off track. Usually after a great victory, after our faith brings something to us, we start thinking, man, we can do anything in the world. We could charge the gates of hell with a squirt gun. Man, we just feel all warm and juicy on the inside. And that's a good place to make a mistake. And David does. Like I said, this, uh, the title of this night, tonight's message is David Becomes King, but it could be titled David's Recurring Problem because it's the same problem that he exhibits and he trips over time after time after time in his life. So David said in his heart, I shall not perish one day by the hand of Saul. Now, is that, does that have anything to do with the things that God's already promised him? Is that possible if the things of God, things that God promised him come true? Well, why is David giving attendance to it then? Why is he giving any thought to perishing at the hand of Saul? If God makes him king and Saul is king now, if God's already anointed him to be king and God brings that to pass, how is it possible that he dies at the hand of Saul and not the other way around or, or some other way? It's impossible. But he's having the same problem with his flesh that you and I have with ours. So David says, I shall now perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than I should speedily escape into the land of the Philistines. Yeah, there's your answer. <laughs> Let's find the enemies of God and go seek refuge. And Saul shall despair of me to seek me any more in any coast of Israel, so, I sh so shall I escape out of his hand. And David arose and he passed over with the 600 men that were with him unto Achish, the son of Maok, king of Gath. And David dwelt with Achish at Gath, and he and his men, every man with his household, even David with his two wives, Ahinoam, the Jezreelitess, and Abigail, the Carmelitess. And it was told Saul that David was fled to Gath, and he sought no more again for him. So what did David accomplish? Relief for his flesh. But folks, when you, do, when you pick your own way to gain relief for your flesh, now, now I understand where David's coming from. He's been running from Saul for seven years. Seven years is a long time to go through a trial. But the fact of the matter is, no matter how long you've been in something, you pick your own way out instead of doing what he's done before that was successful inquiring of the Lord and finding out what God's plan for, was for him. Where do I go next, Lord? What do I do next? Every time David got himself in trouble was when he made his own plan instead of inquiring of the Lord. That was true all throughout his life. Like I said, he trips over the same thing again and again, which you, we usually do too. Maybe a different thing that you trip over that I do, but it's usually the same thing again and again and again. But it gains relief for his flesh. Saul doesn't chase after him anymore because now he's with the Philistines. Now, do you remember who Achish is? The king of Gath. Do you remember who he is? In chapter 21, I believe it is, David goes to him before when he made his own plan about how to get away and how to escape from Saul. He went and he found that since uh, there was very few of them that went with him, now he's got 600 men to go. The first time there was only a couple, I think. We don't know exactly how many, but it was a short number at least. And the first time he got there, the king and the king's advisors didn't believe that David was there in peace. He, they, they thought that he was there to cause them trouble. So David had to act crazy to get out from, uh, from under his dominion. But he goes right back to the same guy. Folks, your flesh will cause you to do stupid things. 
We need to learn that. Your flesh is never a safe guide. David's running out of fear. Fear is not a good, a good direction maker. So David stays with King Achish for a while. And then after a little while, maybe after a month or two, then he asks for uh, uh, the king to give him his own place out in the country where he won't be in the royal city and he won't be a burden on anybody. And he's trying to get away from the king, obviously. Now, if I was King Achish, I'd want to know, is that crazy spell stuff over with? But no mention is made. It's like it never happened. And King Achish gives him Ziklag, the city of Ziklag. Verse 6, it says, Ziklag pertaineth unto the kings of Judah until this day. And so David goes out and dwells in Ziklag in the country country of the Philistines and was there for about 16 months, according to verse 7. And David went up, verse 8, and invaded the Geshurites and the Gezites and the Amalekites. For those were nations of old, the inhabitants of the land, as thou goest to Shur, even unto the land of Egypt. In other words, that means these are still part of the people that were there before Joshua conquered the, the land of Canaan. Now, these are people that um, King Achish either has alliances with or is friendly with in some way or another because David has to hide what he does with them. Verse 9, David smote the land and left neither man nor woman alive and took away the sheep and the oxen and the asses and the camels and the apparel and returned. And notice he didn't go back to Ziklag. He went back to King Achish. What in the world is he doing that for? Achish said, Why, where have you made a road today? In other words, where'd you get all this stuff? Now, David's probably going after a spoil to, to take care of his men. He's probably attacking these people, not just because they're enemies of Israel, which they were, but, but he's got to provide for these men. He's got 600 men and their wives and all their uh, whatever group, kids or whoever else that they had with them. They've got to have something that sustains them. They're not traveling with enough food to to sustain them indefinitely. So he goes and gets the spoils that come from defeating these other people. And so Achish says, where'd you you get this stuff? And David said, against the south of Judah and against the south of the somebody and against the south of the Kenites. And David saved neither man nor woman alive to bring tidings to Gath saying, lest they should tell on us, saying, so did David, and so will be his matter all the while he dwelleth in the country of the Philistines. In other words, he had to kill everybody to keep it quiet what he's doing. Now, does anybody see anywhere in here where God told him to do this? Why then is he doing it? Because he's making his own plans. And Achish believed David, saying, He has made his people of Israel utterly to abhor him. Therefore, he shall be my servant forever. Now, notice what Achish's plan is. Here's the great champion of Israel, and now he'll serve me. What do you think David thought the result would be when he went into the land of the Philistines? You think he thought that he'd wind up being the servant of King Achish? You think that was part of his plan? How far out did David plan this? How far in the future is he looking at this? What... To what degree has he made detailed plans about what's he going to do when he gets there? Folks, he's just running from Saul. And bless people's hearts, I see this so often. Some folks, they just get tired of the battle and they just start running. They don't know what they're running from. They don't know what they're running to. They're just running. 
They give up on what God has told them. They give up on the word of God for their healing or their, their well-being, their financial well-being, whatever the case is. They get tired of the battle and then they just start running and they run from everything that can help them and wind up in the middle of everything that can hurt them. Why? Fear. David's given in to fear. He's afraid that Saul's going to kill him. Well, hasn't God protected you so forward and so far, David? Has God run out of strength to help you the next time? So, verse 28 tells us what the end result is. It says, It came to pass in those days that the Philistines gathered their armies together for warfare to fight with Israel. And Achish says to David, I want to know assuredly that you will go out with me to battle, you and your men. Now David's going to have to pay the price for his running. Now he's got to fight his own people. Now there's two schools of thought in this. One school of thought is that David is willing to fight against Israel. I don't believe that. If that were the case, wouldn't it be better for him just to have killed Saul in one of those two occasions and not kill other people in battle? So the other school of thought is, the other possibility is that David and his 600 men, who the Bible says brings up the rear of the Philistine armies with the King Achish, would have fought from the, the rear and you know brought in a sneak guerrilla attack, surprise attack from the rear. Well, that's very possible. But do we see anything in here where God's telling him to do it? Nope, not again. So David says, you know what I can do. In other words, you know my reputation. Of course, I'll be with you. Verse 3, now notice this. It says, now Samuel was dead and all Israel had lamented him and buried him in Ramah, even in his own city. And Saul had put away those that had familiar spirits and the wizards out of the land. Now, that doesn't mean he did that when Samuel died. It means he had already given that decree beforehand, probably at Samuel's instruction. And the Philistines gathered themselves together and came and pitched in Shudim. And Saul gathered all Israel together and they pitched in Gilboa. In other words, it indicates to us that the Philistines planned their battle when they heard that Samuel the prophet was dead. They probably thought the man of God that directed them before is gone off the scene. This is the best time possible to attack our enemies. Now, what happens then is that God delivers David from having to do something bad one way or the other because the lords of the philistines uh, well i'm ahead of myself let me um this starts in verse 19 let me talk about saul here for a minute first as the in the order of the scripture it says uh, when saul saw the host of the philistines verse 5 he was afraid and his heart greatly trembled and when saul inquired of the lord the lord answered him not neither by dreams nor by urim nor by prophets now folks you need to understand something if god is quiet you need to check and make sure you're in fellowship with him. Now, I want you to keep this in mind. In contrast, what happens with David? David's made some mistakes too, but when he finally does turn around and inquire of the Lord, the Lord speaks right up to him. Because he hasn't disobeyed God, he's just followed his flesh instead of the direction that God would have for him. Saul's in a totally different category. Saul has disobeyed what God has told him to do. He's known the direction of God and did his own thing instead. So Saul said unto his servants, seek me a woman that has a familiar spirit. Those things that he's out loud, you know, those occult practices. That I may go unto her and inquire of her. And his servant said unto him, behold, there's a woman that has a familiar spirit in indoor. And Saul disguised himself and came to the woman and said, I want you to call somebody for me. And she says, well, you know, the, the, the order of the king. She didn't know it's Saul at that point in time. 
The king said, nobody can do that, and you're setting me up to have my head taken off. And he said, no, I promise no harm will come to you. So she said, verse 11, whom shall I bring up unto thee? And he said, bring me up Samuel. Now, the only reason that I want to take time to to talk about this a little bit is because a lot of times people have questions, particularly young people have questions about demon spirits and and, uh, uh, occult practices and uh, fortune tellers and stuff like that. And the Bible gives you some hints about what this stuff is all about. This is a good one. Verse 12, And when the woman saw Samuel, she cried with a loud voice. And the woman spake to Saul, saying, Why hast thou deceived me? For thou art Saul. And the king said unto her, Be not afraid, for what sawest thou? And the woman said unto Saul, I saw, said unto Saul, I saw gods, the margin of my Bible says divine beings, ascending out of the earth. Now, folks, I want you to know something. She's got a reputation for being a fortune teller. She's got a reputation for speaking to the dead. But whatever her experience is with speaking to the dead, the so-called dead, is nothing like what happens when Saul, somebody from the dead, really comes back. This freaks her out, which means she's not been speaking to the dead any of the time before. Whatever she's been pulling off over onto the people or whatever spirits have been giving her whatever information there is, it has not been communication with the dead. Because when she sees somebody that's dead that really comes back from Abraham's bosom, Samuel... She falls over backwards and says, oh, my God, what are you doing? Saul has to ask and say, don't be afraid. Who'd you see? And she describes somebody, and he says, oh, that's Samuel. So his conversation with Samuel is real interesting. Now, I don't know how they conversed. I don't imagine that Samuel is going to be speaking through her, but he has to ask her what she saw. So he's not seeing it. So I'm not sure how the communication took place, but it did. So it said, then Saul said unto the, um, I'm sorry, I skipped around here. Uh, Verse 15, and Samuel said to Saul, why hast thou disquieted me to bring me up? Now, I want you to notice he came up. A lot of people have, have questions about Abraham's bosom and paradise and all that kind of stuff. Those things were in the heart of the earth until Jesus took them to heaven with him. Now the Bible says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That wouldn't be coming up. That'd be coming down. So wherever Samuel was prior to Jesus going to the cross is down in the heart of the earth. That's what the Bible is speaking of when it says Jesus led captivity captive. He took those in Abraham's bosom. Another name for Abraham's bosom is paradise. Remember Jesus said to the thief on the cross, I say unto you this day, you shall be with me in paradise. He didn't say, I'm telling you, you'll be there today. He said, I'm telling you today, you'll be there with me. And he was. And so Samuel says, why have you disquieted me to bring me up? Apparently, Samuel would rather be where he was, even in Abraham's bosom. Now, folks, whatever you want to think about this, Abraham's bosom can't light a candle to the presence of God in heaven. And Samuel is saying, what did you bother me for in paradise? So earth is about the worst place you can be if the scripture is, means what it says. We need to stop feeling sorry for people that have gone on ahead of us. Now, you can feel sorry for yourself if you want to because they're gone, but don't feel sorry for them. Amen? So he said, why have you disquieted me and brought me up? And Saul said, I am sore distressed for the Philistines make war against me and God has departed from me and answers me no more, neither by prophets nor by dreams. Therefore, have I called thee that thou should make known unto me what I should do. And Samuel basically says, okay, let me get this right. God's not talking to you, so you want me to. 
Like I'm going to talk to you if God's not. So he said, uh, verse 17, he reminds him, the Lord has rent the kingdom, torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it unto your neighbor, even to David, because you obeyed not the voice of the Lord nor executed his fierce wrath upon Amalek. David's still fighting them, by the way. Therefore has the Lord done this thing unto thee this day. Moreover, the Lord will also deliver Israel with thee into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow shall thou and thy sons be with me. Now, if we, with me means in Abraham's bosom, then that's where Saul and Jonathan and his other brothers were there, went, the other sons of Saul. Samuel fell straightway, uh, I'm sorry, Saul fell straightway, straightway along the, uh, on the earth. He fell face down on the earth. All the strength was gone out of him because he's just been told he's going to die the next day. Israel's going to lose and so forth. Now, let's skip, with, let's skip over to chapter 29. Meanwhile, back at the ranch... David doesn't know any of this stuff's been going on. This is going on on the other side of the, the issue here. Now, the Philistines gathered together all their armies to Aphek, and the Israelites pitched by a fountain, which is at Jezreel. And the lords of the Philistines passed on by hundreds and by thousands, but David and his men passed on in the rearward with Achish. Now, the lords of the Philistines, in other words, there were five kings of the Philistines and, and uh, Achish and, and four others, I guess. And the other four come and say to Achish, we don't want David with us. Now, whatever Achish's plan was for David being the great hero of Israel to fight against them, they said, we can't trust this guy. We don't want him fighting with us. He, who knows? He may turn with us. He may try to seek the favor of Israel, his own people, by trying to attack us from the rear. And notice the reason that they give. They said in verse 5, is this not David of whom they sang one to another in dances? saying Saul slew his thousands and David his ten thousands? Folks, I want you to realize that song is at least seven years old. They're still singing that song. It's so widely known that even his enemies, even the enemies of Israel know and remember. That's who this guy is. So they make David go back. King Achish talks to David and makes him go back. Now David puts on a good show. He says, well, what have I done? How is this my fault? How have I done anything that caused me not to be able to be a part of this battle? Which says to me, he's probably planning to fight from the rear against the Philistines because he wouldn't raise his hand against the king. So why would he raise his hand against the king's armies? But you decide for yourself. The Bible doesn't really say one way or the other. But they prevail. Achish prevails upon David and says, well, the, the other kings won't let you come. So you're going to have to go back home and and sit this one out so it says in chapter 30 so and it came to pass when david and his men were come back to ziklag it took them three days to go from where they were assembled for the battle back to their home base in ziklag it says when david and his men were come to ziklag on the third day the amalekites had invaded the south and ziklag and smitten ziklag and burned it with fire and taken the women captives that were therein They slew not any, either great or small, but carried them away and went on their way. So David and his men came to the city, and behold, it was burned with fire. And their wives and their sons and their daughters were taken captive. Then David and the people that were with him lifted up their voice and wept until they had no more power to weep. Now, folks, I want you to understand something. This is the first time David's ever been defeated in any sense, in any way, by any army. Now, ask yourself why.
Two schools of thought. One school of thought is that he was willing to fight against Israel. I reject that one. I don't think that was the case because David would, as I said, David wouldn't fight against the king. He wouldn't raise his hand against King Saul. So why would he raise his hand against Saul's armies? Well, then that leaves us only one other option. And that is the following of his flesh has come back to haunt him. Rather than inquiring of the Lord where to be to begin with, he never was supposed to be in, in Philistine territory. He never was supposed to be in Ziklag. He never was supposed to spend that year and a half, roughly, between the time he spent in Ziklag and the other several months that he spent with Achish. That year and a half, he was supposed to be somewhere else. Now, you need to understand something. When you follow your flesh instead of follow the direction of the Lord, you'll get by for a while and it won't seem like it's, it's caused any problems. But sooner or later, it'll catch up with you. Here it catches up with David. Now the question is, what's David going to do? Verse 6, And David was greatly distressed, for the people spake of stoning him. They know, the guys know. Now I realize that they're operating by their flesh and they're upset and everybody's grieved because they lost their wife and their kids and their stuff and whatever else. I understand that there's a lot of emotions, you know, involved and, and emotions are running high and, and, and all that other stuff. But they have some kind of sense too. This is new territory for us. We've never lost a battle with you. We've never been defeated in any way by an enemy. How is it that you didn't know to lead people back to protect the, the, the family members? There's all kinds of questions that could be asked here. And it all points back to David. It points back to David not having either been an effective leader in a military sense or not having gotten the direction of God on what to do to begin with. So David knows his life's in the balance. These are hardened guys. These are warriors. This is special force type people. When they talk about killing you, they're not playing. So David was greatly distressed for the people spake of stoning him because the soul of all the people was grieved. Every man for his sons and his daughters. But David, but David encouraged himself in the Lord. How is the only way he's going to encourage himself in the Lord? The only way you and I can encourage ourselves in the Lord, and that is to remind yourself of what God told you to begin with. Now, again, I would submit to you that he's forgotten that, and that's the whole reason why he's in this territory to begin with. There's no reason in chapter 27, verse 1, he should say, my life is going to be taken at the hand of Saul if the promise of God is true. He's had to have turned away and looked away from the promise of God about being king. And maybe that has something to do with the time that's involved. I know a lot of people lose heart because things don't work. The word doesn't work in their lives as quickly as they thought that it would or want it to or whatever the case is. And so a lot of people lose heart just by the virtue of the fact that it's been a long time. The Bible says hope deferred makes the heart sick. But when the desire comes, it's a tree of life. Some people won't hang in there until the tree of life comes. Maybe that's the case here. Regardless, David responds to his lowest point by encouraging himself in the Lord. In other words, reminding himself of what God said to him to begin with. That's the only encouragement he's going to be able to get. That's the only thing that would encourage him is to remind himself, wait a minute, Samuel anointed me to be king. If God said I was going to be king, then nobody can change that. I will be king. That means this is not my end. That means I don't end here in the ruins of Ziklag. So what does he do next? David said to Abathar, the priest, Ahimelech's son, I pray thee, bring hither the ephod. And Abathar brought hither the ephod to David. And David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I pursue after this troop? 
Now, again, I've got to ask the same question. Why didn't he do that in chapter 27, verse 1? Abathar has been with him all the time. Why didn't he inquire of the Lord and say, well, Lord, you delivered me from the hand of Saul twice. Now, where do we go next? He's too busy making his own plans. But he inquired of the Lord, saying, shall I pursue after this troop? Shall I overtake them? And the Lord answered him and said, Pursue, for thou shalt surely overtake them, and without fail recover all. Now notice what David does. David's gone from being the, the, the root cause of the problem in these people's eyes, these so, uh, soldiers' and warriors' eyes, to being their leader again. So David went, he and the 600 men that were with him and came to the brook Bishore, where those were that left, where those that were left behind stayed. In other words, it tells us that of the 600 men, and remember, they've been traveling for uh, three days from the the battlefield where they were assembled to go against Israel. It took them three days to get back to Ziklag. In the same day, they inquire the Lord what to do. David gets instruction and information from the Lord to go after these people because you'll pursue them and recover everything that was taken. He has to communicate that to the people or else they wouldn't follow him. He has to communicate that to the, to the soldiers. He has to communicate that to the 600 men and tell them. The Lord said, we'll get this stuff back. We'll get everybody and everything back. Don't lose heart. Stick with me for one more battle. And they do. But it's, it takes a toll on the people. So David and his 600 men get to the brook of Besor, and 200 of them, for whatever reason, can't go any further. So David compels them to stay. He sees that they're weakened, that they're not going to be any good in the battle if they do follow. So he tells them, stay here. Apparently, they leave behind some of the stuff, the provisions that they take with them, whatever they had. They leave that with the, with the 200 men, and they go further, go forward. Verse 10, but David pursued he and 400 men for 200 abode behind, which were so faint they could not go over the brook be sore. And it tells us about how they found this little Egyptian slave boy that was left behind by the Amalekites. And uh, they feed him and befriend him and, and ask who he is and what's he doing out there. And he says that he was part of the Amalekites uh, group, a slave to them. And David said, will you show us where they are? And he said, if you don't give me back to my master, yeah. So he does. He shows them where they are, shows them where the Amalekites were. And when he brought them down, verse 16, behold, the Amalekites were spread abroad unto all the earth, eating and drinking and dancing because of the great spoil they had taken out of the land of the Philistines and out of the land of Judah. In other words, they didn't have just Ziklag stuff, David and his army stuff, the spoil that was of theirs, but they had been on a raid throughout the, the, the rest of the land of the Philistines. Now, why did they go through the land of the Philistines? Because they knew Philistines, Philistia, the five kings of the Philistines were armored against israel they found out about their plans to attack israel so it became open season everywhere so they come up on this this group of the malachites and they've got more stuff than you can imagine so david says says and david smote them from the twilight even until the evening of the next day and there escaped not a man of them save 400 young men which rode upon his camels and fled and david recovered all that the amalekites had carried away and david rescued his two wives And there was nothing lacking to them, neither small nor great, neither sons nor daughters, neither spoiled nor anything that they had taken to them. David recovered all. And David took all the flocks and the herds which which they drave before those other cattle and said, this is David's spoil. Now, what that means is David said, all right, everybody gets their own stuff back. But everything that, that that the Amalekites took from other cities, the rest of their spoil, that's mine. 
Now, he doesn't take it to himself. He winds up divvying it up and dividing it up between other cities in Judah and so forth. And it becomes a real smart political move for him. But I want you to see this, folks. I want you to see that in the lowest part of David's life, at the time that it looked the least like he was going to be king, he's about a week away from being crowned king. And you need to keep that in mind. You need to keep in mind when the devil comes at you with his biggest, biggest attack, drops the biggest bomb he's got on you, many times that's his last shot. And if we take the same approach that David did, we can have the same results that David did. The first thing David did was control his emotions. He was greatly distressed, not only because of the circumstances of losing his wife and his family and all of his stuff, but because everybody's turned against him. The first thing he did was control his emotions. The second thing he did is he asked God, what do I do now? Get direction from the Lord. God will give you the answer. Once you obey that answer, you'll recover everything you lost, just like David did. So they come back to the 200 that were there at the brook, and there was some argument between the the, uh, 600 men, the 400 that followed uh, David further. And what operated in the battle. They didn't want these guys to get back anything except their families. David said, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to treat everybody equally. They would have come with us if they could. So David starts sending the spoil to other leaders, elders of Judah, even to his friends. In other words, the part of the, the land that he had hidden out before he came to land of the Philistines. He starts sending gifts and presents to them. He's ingratiating them unto himself. Now, in chapter 31, it tells us about how the Philistines fought against Israel. It tells us about how Saul Saul and his his, uh, sons were killed. Jonathan and his brothers were killed in battle. Saul saw that the battle was lost, and so he asked his armor bearer to kill him, and he wouldn't. So Saul took his own life. He fell upon his own sword. In 2 Samuel chapter 1, it says that David um, is approached by some young guy that tells about Saul being dead, Saul being killed. And so David asks, how did he die? This guy fabricates a story, apparently thinking that he's going to get in good with David this way. He fabricates a story and says that he came upon Saul and Saul wanted him to kill him. And so this guy did. Well, that's not what the previous chapter said happened. And so David in his operates according to his core principle. Now, you need to get this. No matter what, David was always true to this core principle. David would have been better off to have other core principles about inquiring of the Lord. But the one core principle that he never would violate is touching the king. Over and over again, he said, I will not raise my hand to touch the, anoint, the, the Lord's anointed. So notice in verse 14, David said unto this young man, How wast thou not afraid to stretch forth your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? In other words, he says, if I wouldn't do it, why would you do it? He winds up having this guy killed. This guy thinking that he's going to gain some place of prominence with David for giving him the news. David turns around and has one of his soldiers kill him. Chapter 2, and it came to pass after this, he he pronounces a a eulogy for Saul and Jonathan and their family and so forth. Chapter 2, it says, and it came to pass after this that David inquired of the Lord saying, shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said unto him, go up. David's back on track now. He's back on track asking God what step to take each time that he comes to a crossroads. So the Lord says, go up. Now, David's not through. He wants some specific answers. He said, And David said to the Lord, where shall I go up? And the Lord said, go into Hebron. 
I want you to notice something about the direction of the Lord, folks. God won't give you the answers. God, let me say it this way. God will only give you the answers you ask. He'll only answer the questions that you ask. He'll only give you the answers you ask for. If you keep things general, God will tell you generally. If you want things to be specifically, you have, specific, you have to ask specifically. I'm reminded of when Moses was on the mountain talking to God and getting the, the uh, Ten Commandments, tables of stone and all that kind of stuff. It says that God told him, I want you to build a tabernacle. Moses could have run down the mountain and told everybody, we want, we're going to build a tabernacle for God. But he didn't. He stayed there and found out how to build the tabernacle. And so many times people get a part of the story, they get a part of the vision, but they don't get the how to do it. I know a lot of people that have the what to do as far as the vision is concerned, but they don't have the how to do it, so they never succeed. Stay with the presence of God. Stay in the looking for the direction of God until you get the specifics you need to take the next step. So the Lord says, go up to Hebron. So David went up and his wives and so forth. Verse 4, and the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. David sent messengers to a certain place that had rescued Saul's body. I I didn't uh, go into this, but when the, the Philistines came and found Saul dead, they cut off his head and stripped his armor and nailed his uh, body to the wall, certain wall. And these men that David is commending and rewards were the ones that treated his body with respect and buried him and did the right things about it. Now in chapter 3, we'll skip through chapter the rest of chapter 2. It tells about a war between uh, Joab, which was David's general, and Abner, which was Saul's general. But it says in chapter 3, now there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David, but David waxed stronger and stronger and the house of Saul waxed weaker and weaker. What, uh, uh, what happened in the previous chapter was after Abner, who was Saul's general, found out that Saul was dead, he took his son, Saul's son, uh, I don't even know if I know how to say his name, but it's um, Isobosheth or something like that. And anyway, he took his son and he crowned him king. Now, this was not God's choice. This was not the people having anything to do with it. This was Abner trying to keep his position as military leader. And so Saul's son, the king of Israel, then becomes a puppet for the military. And that continues for the next several years. It says there was, again, in chapter 3, verse 1, there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. You need to understand what that means. Saul, uh, the house of Saul, meaning Saul's son, is uh, being controlled by Abner, the military general. And he wages war against David's men. This is a defensive war as far as David is concerned. David is not attacking Israel in any way whatsoever. He just defends himself and his armies defend themselves when they are attacked. But that's the only thing that takes place. And as a result, their defenses were so good that Israel's armies are defeated time after time after time. So David gets stronger and stronger. And Abner, on behalf of the new king of Israel gets weaker and weaker and weaker. And it tells us, going further, that uh, the, uh, the new king is, calls out Abner concerning one of the concubines. And so they have a falling out. He, he inquires of Abner, why have you gone into my father's concubine? And Abner gets upset and says, of all the things I've done for you, you're going to talk to me about this regarding a woman? 
you know, get on to me and re- reprimanded me about this, about a concubine. So he winds up going to make it, making a treaty with uh, David. And so he kind of delivers his army into David's hands. And so the perfect opportunity for David to take, uh, take over Israel and do something against the new king of Israel. But David never does do it. It's his core principle. He will not touch the one that's been made king, even though God wasn't in the making of this king. So it says that uh, uh, Joab kills Abner. Joab is uh, David's general. He kills Abner because of Abner's uh, killing of uh, one of his sons. And so David, instead of taking revenge or uh, doing something against Joab, David pronounces a curse upon Joab's family. In verse 29... This is chapter 3, verse 29, 2 Samuel three twenty-nine. Let it rest on the head of Joab and on all of his father's house, and let there not fail from the house of Joab one that has an issue, or one that is a leper, or one that leaneth on the staff, or one that falleth on the sword, or that lacketh bread. In other words, he says, throughout Joab's family, there will always be these bad things happening. Why? Because Joab took uh, deceitfully, took advantage of Abner, called him with the pretense that David was trying to get a hold of him, got him in a place in secret and killed him. And David, knowing that it would be a a reproach on him, had to then issue some kind of response to Joab. You can't kill your general. He's been faithful. He's been a servant. He thought he was doing the right thing. But David uh, exacts this, uh, this judgment, this curse upon Joab's family. And the Bible tells us that that's exactly the way it was throughout the rest of his life throughout the rest of his family's life. So the next thing that happens, and again, forgive me for going so fast, but I'm trying to get this through in a hurry. It tells us about this new king that was killed. There was a man that, uh, that snuck in privately into his bedchamber, and they killed him. Again, they come, as a matter of fact, there were two of them. They were brothers, and they come back to David, and they said, well, we've killed the new king of, of uh, Israel, so now it's clear sailing for you to be king of everything. And so David finds out what they did. And David commanded the, the, his soldiers to slay these two brothers. Again, core principle. You don't touch the Lord's anointing. You don't touch the king. So he had these two men killed and cut off their hands and their feet and hanged them up over the pool in Hebron, but took the head of the new king and buried in the sepulcher of Abner in Hebron. Now in chapter 5, Then came all the tribes of Israel to David unto Hebron and spake, saying, Behold, we are thy bone and thy flesh. Second Chronicles tells us a little bit more information about how this was a three-day feast and there were lots and lots of people that came and all of Israel now is, is kind of joining in and choosing David to be their own king. This is not a um, David setting himself up in any way whatsoever. The people are really doing this. So it says in verse 3, So all the elders of Israel came to the king of Hebron and King David made a league with them in Hebron before the Lord and they anointed David king over Israel. Now it tells us that... Uh, well, let me just keep reading it rather than just refer to it. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. In Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years. That means from the time that he was about 15 to 17 when uh, he slew Goliath to where he started running from Saul. Until age 30, he was anointed to be king of Judah. Then seven years later, he was anointed to be king over all of Israel. So that's what it means. In Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And in Jerusalem, he reigned 30 and three years over all of Israel and all of Judah. The last thing that he does that we'll talk about here is 
in verse 7, it says, Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion. The same is in the city of David. The first thing David does is he goes to Jerusalem, makes Jerusalem his capital, and he takes the hill, the city of Zion, or, or the, the stronghold of Zion, which is what is known today as the Temple Mount. He takes, this, this takes Zion, even though it's under the control of other people, and they disdain him. They, they treat him like he's nobody. He says, even the, the lame and the blind people can defend you, defend our, our stronghold against you. And the reason for that is because it's on a hill. But David goes up through the water chute, what's called the water chute. He goes in a secret passage, or what, they, what the people would have thought was a secret passage at least. And he goes up and he takes the city and he from that point forward operates from the city of Jerusalem in the hill of Zion. Now Zion is always a type of the church. Zion is always referred to in the New Testament as a type of the church. And you can see that Jesus, or that uh, David fulfills the, the, uh, the type of Jesus where the people choose to serve him only after great victories are won. Which is the same thing with Jesus. It points to the fact that Jesus spoiled principalities and powers and made an open show of them. It points also to the fact that Jerusalem, that uh, the Jews, rather, Israel, rejected Jesus, but they won't always do that. The church accepted him. Even as Judah and Israel were, had separate kings there for a while, the tribe of Judah, remember, this is not a divided kingdom. That doesn't happen until Solomon, after Solomon's reign, some 50 years after David is first crowned. Well, it's longer than that. It'd be about 75 years after David is first crowned. And that's a picture of the Jews rejecting, but Judah accepting. Israel rejecting Israel, having their own king, but Judah accepting David as their king. The thing that stands out about this to me is, uh, like I said before, David's recurring problem. Time after time after time, he comes up with his own plan. And usually those times are after a great victory. God will do something great. God will show that he's on his side. And then David came up with his own plan. I think if there is anything, now that's certainly not a type of Jesus. But if there is anything that there is for us to learn is that on the way to being king, trust the direction of God. His way is always the better way. It's not the fastest way. But it's always the most sure way. Romans 8, 14 says, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. Verse 16 goes on to say, The Spirit himself beareth witness with our spirits that we are the children of God. Folks, the, the direction of God is always available to you if you'll get quiet enough to hear it. But you're going to be just like I've been and just like David is, was, and that is the places you'll make your mistakes. It's when you start following your flesh or doing the things that your flesh wants to do. And miss out on inquiring of the Lord to find out what he says to do. But if you'll follow. And even in David's case with the mistakes he made. And boy he made a lot of them. We think of David's mistake as being his mistake with Bathsheba. But that was the same reason that he made the other mistakes. And that is he starts making his own plans instead of inquiring of the Lord what to do. Every mistake you can find that David made in, his, uh, in the, the Bible record of his life. Is because he did something that he wanted to do according to his flesh. Instead of inquiring of the Lord. But every time David. Here's one characteristic about David. He was quick to repent. Once he realized what he was doing. He'd turn around and he'd inquire of the Lord. God was always there to answer him. Every time. Wasn't the same way as with Saul. Saul was in disobedience. Time and time and time again. And never would repent. 
Never would acknowledge his own wrongdoing. Not so with David. Every time David realized he had done the wrong thing, he'd get back on track, and God was always there to speak to him. It's the same way with us. Just as 1 John 1, 9 says, for us, if we'll confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins and, uncleans, and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you're cleansed from all unrighteousness, that means the, the, the communication lines are open again. Brother Hagin used to always say, don't run from God, run to him. When you've done wrong, don't run from him, run to him. There's a lot of things we can emulate and should emulate about David's life as far as his courage, many aspects of his character, but do not follow him when it comes to the the leading of the flesh versus inquiring of the Lord. We need to be led of the Spirit of God in everything that we do. Amen? Amen. Well, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth. Thank you, Lord, that we can be led by the Holy Ghost in every situation. I thank you, Lord, for opening the eyes of our spirits, speaking to our hearts, Lord, to cause each and every one of us to know exactly what steps to take at exactly the right time. Thank you, Father, that the steps of a good man are ordered of the Lord and that we are made good and righteous by the blood of Jesus. Thank you, Father, that the Holy Spirit guides us into all truth in every area and every aspect of our lives. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being with us.